dark secret place. This radioactivity is coming from Brian Suits on KFI. I would bomb the shit out of him. Dark Secret Place with Brian Suits on KFI. KFI AM, 640 more stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here live until midnight. Uh, next hour, we'll, uh, I w- we'll uh, sort of describe the process of a uh, state uh, satisfying a federal mission calling it the National Guard. And whether or not a state can uh, can uh, uh, refuse to do it, like uh, will will Jerry Brown refuse to do it? Uh, because that's jury's still out, but he's hedging his bets. Uh, that and uh, some some TV picks later. And there's two two shows have just absolutely hit me lately uh, that I'll tell you about later on this hour. They're both on Netflix. One is from Norway, and and if you listen, if you've been listening for a long time, you know I've talked about this show. The other one's from Israel. Terrific. And I can't wait to tell you about it here later on this hour. But um, so first, though, uh, a a big, big deal. Earlier today, the Assad regime used apparently sarin, uh, according to experts on the ground, sarin nerve gas in a chemical attack on a civilian area in the, uh, the suburb of Damascus called Duma. So... Before we get into what the State Department just released a, a, a couple hours ago, the attack has killed evidently between 75 and 100 people, most all of them uh, women and children, approximately 30 adult men, but all of them families. None of them were fighters. Um, and this is according to people on the ground, if you want to believe people on the ground. Uh, you'll recall it was one year ago that the Trump administration responded to an Assad gas attack by uh, shooting a bunch of cruise missiles at a Syrian airbase where supposedly the the aircraft were armed with the uh, the sarin gas. Th- this was at the time it was it was fairly well understood that uh, Putin and the Russian Air Force needed to step aside and let Trump have his win. Uh, at the time, Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, was uh, meeting at Mar-a-Lago. You'll you'll recall they were having dinner in, at Mar-a-Lago, and uh, a, a national security official came up to Trump and interrupted the dinner and spoke into his left ear and said, you know, something. And uh, and uh, this was post the strike had just happened, and Trump told Xi Jinping, "Yeah, we just hit that airfield in Syria. You know, don't mess with the United States, and uh, you know, and the whole thing." So this is a this is one year later. Uh, is it a coincidence? Mm, I mean, if you want to get down to brass tacks, with the time difference, it is not literally a one-year difference, but but it it is a pretty remarkable coincidence that one year after the United States hit the Syrians for doing this, it's done again. And uh, and again, this is the neighborhood where the Obama administration's their their phony red line um, happened after the Assad regime hit this neighborhood with chemical weapons. So the, the Assad regime to get the American dogs off and, and, and there was no ever not a real threat that the U S was really going to strike Syria when Obama was president. In fact, secretary of state, John Kerry went out of his way to minimize what the military planning was. He went out of his way to say, it's going to be just a pinpoint strike, like practically not even doing it. 
He was so conflict averse, and so was Obama, to the Democratic base. That in, in this scenario where a guy is gassing children, you, you can't see a moral path to, to uh, using force against that guy. But anyway, the State Department, uh, Heather Nauer statement by the spokesperson, Heather Nauert, uh, was released a few hours ago. She, they say, quote, on the, on the chemical attack in Duma, we continue to closely follow disturbing reports on April 7 regarding another alleged chemical weapons attack, this time targeting a hospital in Duma, Syria. Reports from a number of contacts and medical personnel on the ground indicate a potentially high number of casualties, including, fa- including among families hiding in shelters. These reports have confirmed are horrifying and demand an immediate response by the international community. The United States continues to use all efforts available to hold those who use chemical weapons in Syria and otherwise accountable. The regime's history of using chemical weapons against its own people is not in dispute. And in fact, nearly one year ago, on April 4, 2017, Assad's forces conducted a sarin gas attack on Khan Shaikhun, which killed approximately 100 Syrians. The Assad regime and its backers must be held accountable and any further attacks prevented immediately. Russia, with its unwavering support for the regime, ultimately bears responsibility for these brutal attacks, targeting of countless civilians, and the suffocation of Syria's most vulnerable communities with chemical weapons. By shielding its allies, uh, its ally Syria, Russia has breached its commitments to the UN as a framework guarantor. It has betrayed the Chemical Weapon Convention and UN Security Council Resolution 2118. Russia's protection of the Assad regime and failure to stop the use of chemical weapons in Syria calls into question its commitment to resolving the overall crisis and to larger nonproliferation priorities. Then the, it ends like this. The United States calls on Russia to end its, this unmitigated support immediately and work with the international community to prevent further barbaric chemical weapons attacks. So here's how this is going to play out. Um, the United States launched, whatever it was, 92 missiles for the same act last year. Uh, we can't do less than that because doing less than that is like doing nothing. So the way this works is within about 72 hours, the United States has to um, respond, you know, either in a larger way or what do you forget? Monique forgot something in here. Come in. What? Um, did you, did you forget something? Oh, Monique, someone, someone call Monique's cell phone. <laughs> Um, and so the United States can't do the same as last year because, this, the I mean, literally, if we shoot 92 missiles tonight, all we're doing is saying, okay, well, here's the cost. Here's what happens. And if we shoot 93, that's just shooting one more, right? And so that's the position that the United States is in. And unlike last year, la- last year, what the State Department said and what the Trump administration said was, hey, Russia, call your attack tag your attack dog off. Don't do that again. And by the way, now we're going to teach him a direct lesson. And we separated Syria from Russia. This is way different. This statement this year, one year later, this is a far different statement. We're, we're blaming Russia directly for Syria's use of chemical weapons, which makes sense because without the firm backing and without believing that Putin would get his back in the international community, Syria would not have done this. And so clearly Putin holds the strings on Bashar Assad. Now, you've heard me say this before. In the big picture, in terms of the Middle East and the hangover of the Ottoman Empire and the whole thing, I've already spent years of my life between, between the Balkans and between Iraq and other former pieces of the Ottoman Empire 
And I really am kind of over it. And what happened in Syria today is horrific, kind of like every day over the past seven years. But the world uh, doesn't seem to be caring a heck of a lot. And why the United States should be the one to go and clean up these messes, I don't know. This, if, if it were me, if I were president of the United States, this would be front and center. I'd be calling an emergency session of the UN tomorrow, the UN Security Council. And I would, and, and the, the Europeans, of course, are horrified, shocked, shocked at this, uh, this, this war crime. But they're unable to do anything about it, but they're looking at us. How quickly was the missile response last time? It was, I think, about three days. Oh, okay. But if, it was a, if it's going to be a, 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 a more devastating response, will it, will it take more time well, to that's, respond? That's the thing, is, is I get the sense that we're putting a 24-hour clock on Putin um, and that we can't imitate what we did last year because like i say that's literally like doing nothing just doing what we did last year which clearly had no effect is just simply doing the same thing so um, i i would say that by monday the united states is probably going to be preparing uh to hit the syrian air force and avoid and make it really clear to the russians this is not about the russian air force but this is about any aircraft that carried out that chemical attack Wherever it is, in a revetment, in a hangar, in a tunnel, or on, a, on an apron, or in the air, we're taking out his Air Force. Um, you can be his Air Force if you want, but we're taking out his Air Force. Because that's, that's where we have to go next after this. Like, like I say, we can't replicate what happened a year ago, because that's like doing nothing. So we have to do uh, something more. And if you're saying, well, we don't have to, well, that's not how the game works. If you don't release a statement like this, and I'm holding it up here, I'm streaming here on YouTube, you don't release a statement like this if you're not prepared to go to 11, to, to kick it up a notch. More on this here in just a second, uh, KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until midnight. KFI, wait, I already said KFI. I caught the train at the station on the tracks. The ride had an engine is old as the moon. Forty more stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. Brian suits in here until uh, midnight. I gotta get a Merle Haggard bumper in there because it was his uh, though we dad um, his birthday yesterday. Bakersfield, Bakersfield, California. Merle Haggard and uh, Buck Owens. Um, all right. Well, the, this is the story that is uh, from the New York Times. Uh, that the anti-government poison poison gas attack reported by Syrian anti-government activists. Anti-government activists accused the Syrian government of attacking a Damascus suburb with poison gas on Saturday as Syrian forces stepped up their campaign to retake the last rebel-held pocket near the capital. Activists in the suburb of Douma, east of Damascus, shared videos online that showed lifeless men, women, and children sprawled on floors with white foam uh, coming out of their mouths. Other footage showed chaotic clinics where medics were hosing down patients and treating them with uh, respirators. Uh, the... Uh, the apparently they're accusing the Syrian Air Force of delivering a uh, uh, several sarin gas bombs. That uh, though there's no video of that, and and there's no confirmation from um, you know obviously from the Syrian side or anything like that. And this is this is uh, part of the issue with what's going on in Syria now, coming into year seven of this is that the United States, from the beginning in the Obama administration, was clearly not willing to uh, affect a regime change in Syria because that would have been the ultimate 
you know, contradiction and, and, and hypocritical foreign policy after criticizing the Bush administration for Iraq, that you, you overthrow Assad, and then, then you do what? You walk away like you did in Libya? Because that place is still a chaosocracy. You know, at least the good news is the American media left after Gaddafi died. Um, and so what, what do you do? Once you break something, how, how do you fix it? And to be perfectly honest, Putin gave the United States three years of free hand. He did not publicly, uh, uh, you know, he didn't have his people down there. And he, he was going, he, uh, he probably would have objected, but he wouldn't have objected too loudly if the United States uh, affected a regime change, but the Alawite regime uh, stayed in charge of Syria, but Assad himself left. Putin, Putin's not married to Bashar Assad or the Assad family, but he does like a, a naval base in Tardis and a, now a new air base at Himim. So whoever is in charge of Syria is going to be whoever Vladimir Putin likes. So that is foreign policy uh, end state number one. That's not changing. Uh, unless you're prepared to go to war with Russia. Because, again, the Russians have aircraft and troops on the ground and mercenaries on the ground in Syria at the invite of the sovereign government. And as illegitimate as you might think Bashar Assad is, the United Nations recognizes Bashar Assad as the legal government of Syria, just like Kim Jong-un is the legal government of North Korea. And we're not in there by his invitation. NATO is fighting ISIS because it aids Assad, because it helps Assad and Putin. It frees up their forces so they don't have to fight ISIS. And they could, in a very embarrassing way, get their, sit down in the Security Council and call for us to leave. And so this, this, uh, this falls into a very, very complex part of foreign, foreign policy because you now have a president who doesn't quite, you know, who stated publicly last week that we're going to get out really fast. This is just, whatever, seven days ago, he, uh, it surprised the Pentagon. He said, we're going to get out of there really fast. Um, we're not, not going to be there long. Even though we have thousands of Americans there, we have 20 bases there in Syria. And he's saying we're going to get out really fast. Well, now, and, and you would think, and, the, and here's the thing, playing devil's advocate, I'm, I'm not here to defend Bashar Assad, but if you're Bashar Assad and you have outlasted, the Obama administration, and now you have an American president who's stating that we're going to get out of there really fast, then all you have to do is sit on your hands for a couple months and Trump will do your, your dirty work for you and get out. The United States will leave Syria because it's really hard to justify to American parents and husbands and wives why their loved ones should be deployed to Syria. Really, really difficult. No one can explain it. So if you're Bashar Assad, why would you risk this inevitable American exit. Okay, and again, I'm playing devil's advocate here. You got the needle to move last year. Maybe it was a mistake. You gassed last year and you got American cruise missiles. It's, it's a year later, and now you have an American president now, a, a year and a half into his presidency, publicly stating he's going to get out of Syria. Why would you risk that by doing this? Th this is a really legitimate question. So while the State Department's... Uh, horrified reaction aside and 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 if they know something if there's electronic communication and i'm assuming there would be um indicating that the syrians really did order this then i would want to see that stuff because 
again, playing devil's advocate, saying for the third time, and not my job to defend Bashar Assad, but if you're him and you're on the verge of seeing the United States just pack up and leave and leave behind a free Syrian army or Syrian defense force and, and a, a bunch of Syrian Kurds that you can probably cut a deal with by just giving them autonomy. And you can end this civil war, but America needs to get out and NATO needs to get out of your airspace. Why would you risk, why would you put that in jeopardy? What, what are you achieving by, by using sarin gas on your own people again? So the workaround for Assad is pretty simple. You, tomorrow morning, you show three generals in handcuffs. And they're getting frog marched to a Syrian court-martial. These guys, uh, without authorization, uh, uh, ordered chemical weapons to be used on uh, innocent civilians. And here's their court-martial. And they're going to be executed probably tomorrow at, at 7 p.m. at sundown. That's if, if Putin is on the phone to Assad and he wants this to go away, that's what he would do. That is a Putin move. You would tell Assad... Find the three generals that you dislike the most. Arrest them. And I don't care if they're artillery, Navy admirals, whatever. Blame it on them. Execute them. Uh, and then move on. Uh, we'll be back right after this. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until midnight. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Bakersfield boy, Merle Haggard. Happy birthday. His birthday was yesterday. Uh, Brian sits here at the Dark Secret Place and uh, read you the State Department uh, statement about the gassing of now uh, approximately 100 civilians dead in uh, the the Damascus suburb of Khan Shaikun. I'm sorry, that was in uh, uh, 2017 in Duma, the the suburb of Damascus. So... this we know in the next 72 hours, here's what's going to happen. We have the playbook from last year, and and that's why there were many uh, who were advising the Trump administration not to set the bar at whatever it was, 92 missiles at a largely uh, probably irrelevant airfield. Um, but that's what the bar was set at, and that was the response to last year's use of chemical weapons. So it's happened again. So we have to do at least that and more. So, I mean, as I say, we can't do at least that because that's literally doing nothing. Repeating what we did last year, and that's it, is doing nothing. We have to do more. Um, so uh, is is Trump that upset about this? Is his daughter Ivanka upset about Apparently last year Ivanka was the one who was very emotional about seeing very disturbing photos of dead infants who have been killed by, by nerve gas. It's, it's a horrific sight. And so what's more than shooting missiles? Well, I I don't know. Uh, The U.N. can be called into an emergency session tomorrow. It probably will be on a Sunday. Um, And if the United United States didn't stand by last year and wait for U.N. sanction or U.N. mandate to do what we did, we just did it. And we told the Russians that we're going to do something and it's not directed towards you. And, you know, we're not going to take any shots at you. You don't take any shots at us. Uh, well, now, in today's statement, we're tying Putin directly to the use of chemical weapons. And so, uh, using last year's playbook, sometime between now and Tuesday, 
there will have to be another strike on Syria. If Donald Trump is serious about what he said a week ago that we'll be getting out quickly, then what you'll see happen is his national security advisor, John Bolton, will, will be at all on all the chat shows tomorrow. Uh, and he'll say, uh, we want to take this through the U.N. process. Uh, the uh, United States, uh, our interest in Syria is minimal. And we don't see uh, repeating what we did last year as having any effect. We want something stronger. We want the U.N. Uh, to be a part of it. But we know that John Bolton doesn't believe in the U.N. and believes in tough action. So tomorrow, um, if he or if Heather Nauert, the spokesperson, whoever is there for state on Meet the Press or whatever, um, if they're emphasizing the U.N. emergency session, which undoubtedly is going to happen tomorrow, um, then that's probably an indication that large military action is not, not underway. But if you hear them, and I sense this is what you're going to hear tomorrow morning, if you hear them saying that we, we stood for this last year, we're not going to stand for it anymore, we're not going to repeat the Obama administration's mistakes, uh, this is an absolute affront to civilization, uh, it will not stand, Bashar Assad is a war criminal, uh, you know, et, et cetera, then that will probably tell you that the Pentagon has been alerted to take action in the form of uh, unmanned strikes via cruise missiles and possibly even manned strikes because we have the aircraft there in, in the area. The aircraft are sitting there in Kuwait uh, and Bahrain, and they're on carriers. Um, and can we count on the Russians to uh, not shoot us down? Well, those phone calls are probably being made right now. Because if Putin is serious about backing Assad, then he will actually have a show of force and say, no, this is sovereign airspace. In fact, get out. Stop, stop even bombing ISIS. Just get the hell out. So this is a very dangerous situation depending on how we respond to it. If we're positive that we have to bomb Bashar Assad uh, and bomb his capital, now bomb his palace, not bomb an airfield, but now take it directly to the Assad family, then, then we are going to war with a Russian ally uh, at that point. And it becomes very, very complex. Um, what, what I hope happens is, like I say, I hope Bolton gets on the phone to Moscow and he says, listen, here's how this works. You call Assad, Assad arrests three generals, they get executed, whatever. Uh, and, and then we send in international teams. And, and whatever they find, those three generals did it. But here, here is the problem. And, and this is why over the past year, I am far more skeptical about taking things at face value in Syria. The Syrian uh, rebels, the so-called Free Syrian Army, in this case, the guys who run this part of, of Syria, uh, the, the Al-Qaeda affiliate that runs this, uh, they're very desperate. They're not winning. They are losing they're not getting the support anymore. We, we were actually arming some of the wrong guys, but they're not getting that support anymore. They are getting funding uh, probably back channel from the Saudis. The Saudis want Assad gone. The quickest way to get Assad gone is if American bombs bomb the crap out of him back to London, where he can go back and be an ophthalmologist. Um, and that looks like it's not going to happen because the American president just said we're getting out. Uh, but... As we speak, uh, the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, who just visited L.A. this week, right, Seattle, and then he visited Trump, he just took off. Uh, he just left Houston. He was in Houston, Texas, 
earlier today, he wrapped up. His advance party took off. He's got like a five-plane air convoy. They just took off literally an hour and a half ago. So they're over the Atlantic right now going back to Saudi Arabia. Is, is it possible that he funded a terror group to do this, to put Assad back on American headlines and American TV screens? I, I don't know. But at this point, anything is probably possible because if, you're the, if you are a Syrian rebel, then you know that your next few weeks or months are the last because the rebellion is losing. It's losing badly. And now that you have an American president saying, what are we doing there? We're getting out fast. You know that desperate times call for desperate measures. And that's why I don't think it's coincidental um, that this is a week after Trump said we're getting out, that this happened. Is that it's the anniversary of, of last year? Uh, I think is it might be a, a coincidence. But as I look at this, as I step back and I look at this, and again, for the fourth time playing devil's advocate, I look at Bashar Assad and, and I ask, why would he do this? What does he seek? What would he gain out of this? When he's waited seven years to put down this rebellion with all the brutal force he possibly can, he now has the light at the end of the tunnel handed to him by the American president who says he wants to get out, all he has to do is stabilize and just wait till the end of the era. We'll be out of there, apparently. So what incentive did he have to do this? And then on the other side, for the Syrian rebels, what incentive do they have to get America back involved and engaged? Well, every incentive. They want to win. So, uh, like I say, we'll, uh, we'll talk about it tomorrow night on Super Hyper Local Sunday because I'll be able to digest the Sunday shows. But it, it will be telling what the American State Department says tomorrow. I think it's going to indicate quite a bit about whether or not we're going we're to utilize American ground forces that are physically in Syria and do something more substantial than just shooting cruise missiles uh, at an airport. Uh, all right, when we come back, two TV shows that really have, have spun me up that I know Dark Secret Place fans are going to love. I'll tell you about them uh, when we come back. Right after this, uh, The Dark Secret Place, KFI, AM 640, more stimulating talk. KFI, AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is The Dark Secret Place, Brian Suits. In here um, until midnight next hour, we'll talk about this uh, new surge, a, a surprise exercise, very large-scale Exercised by the Chinese Navy um, coming on the heels of a long scheduled exercise that just finished up. But the, the Chinese this time are adding military muscle to the building trade war between uh, the U.S. and China. Though that's not something that we do, but uh, the, the Chinese don't separate the two things. The Chinese don't separate foreign policy from commerce from the military. To them, it's all one thing. It's national power. Uh, we do. We put very clear lines between those those things. But anyway, um, so it's not often. I don't often uh, talk about the TV that I watch, but uh, I, I do have to pass on uh, two really outstanding series that I really, really enjoy that are both available on Netflix. And I am uh, I am not a paid spokesperson for Netflix, though they used to be up here on the sixth floor. But um they are the Norwegian series called Occupied and this new Israeli series called Fauda, which is Arabic for chaos. So first, Occupied. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to play any clips, by the way, because it's in frickin' Norwegian, okay? And the other one is in Hebrew and Arabic with a tiny bit of English. But anyway, the premise of Occupied is that Europe 
let's say five years from now, not the distant future, but the very near future, five years from now, you know, Brexit has occurred. Uh, the EU has tightened up. Uh, uh, the the world of energy has uh, changed a bit. A, a new sustainable clean energy has, is being pioneered, in fact, by uh, the Norwegians. And so the Norwegian prime minister declares that Norway will no longer sell its North Sea oil because oil is filthy, it's polluting the planet, and we're not going to sell it. Um, the strategic position of the U.S. is that the U.S., uh, in the next five years or 10 years, has slowly uh, retracted from Europe. Um, and NATO is, still exists, but it's, it's almost uh, a, a distant idea. It doesn't, it doesn't exist in real form anymore, and that the EU has more power than the North Atlantic Council or, or the NATO Association. So uh, the EU responds to Norway's embargo of oil to, uh, to the rest of Europe by uh, passing a EU law requesting that Russia occupy Norway and begin repumping the Norwegian oil because the EU economies uh, uh, are, are going to collapse because of what the Norwegians did. So the EU stance is, well, cutting us off cold turkey like that is practically an act of war. And uh, we are going to request that the Russians occupy Norway and restart your oil fields. So there's a very, very low-key Russian, slow Russian occupation by secret police and uh, in military intelligence, GRU. Russian civilians now are all over Norway, renting out hotels, starting businesses. The Russian military uh, is, um, uh, is in very low-key form uh, in Norway. The Norwegian military has split. There are a bunch of collaborators who feel like they've been ordered by their democratically elected prime minister to uh, to do something. Um, he's been deposed. Um, he's he's left, uh, and the the new prime minister has legally been elected, um, and that they are following this EU policy and they're assisting the Russians. The other half, of the Norwegian military, is taken to the north, and they are the the resistance. The United States is really kind of sitting this one out, basically, because um, the the Russians have and the Europeans have very cleverly used the democratic process to basically invite legally invite the Russians in. And if you like House of Cards, and I know that either you get House of Cards and you love it, or you don't get it and you haven't watched it past the first ten minutes. If you like House of Cards, this is like House of Cards with a military occupation. Okay, there's a lot, there are many layers of the story. There's a great political element uh, as the parliamentary government is maneuvering to find uh, the, whatever Norwegian wants to uh, end their political career by collaborating with the Russians. Uh, nobody wants violence, but, but there are a group of Norwegians who, just like the uh, German occupation in World War II, who realize someone has to fight back. And so it is, it's a distant mirror. It's sort of Norway holding up a mirror to what they did in World War II, where the majority of Norwegians collaborated and a few brave ones fought back. But it's called Occupied, and it is on uh, Netflix, and season two was just dropped. I just completed season two. It's very binge-worthy. Um, really, really love it. So show number two, it's from Israel. It's called Fauda, Chaos in Arabic. Uh, I believe they're in the third season in Israel. 
the uh, the first season was just dropped on Netflix. Second season comes up uh, here in about two weeks. They're going to drop that uh, in late April. Um, what it is is it is a intimate drama, uh, an intimate inside look at a very specific Israeli uh, military counterintelligence counterterror unit. Uh, this is a counterterror unit that's comprised of Israelis who can physically mimic Arabs, Palestinians specifically, and who speak Arabic um, fluently and colloquially. So they, they can sound like they grew up on the West Bank because they, they have to go undercover with minimum weaponry, weaponry and they have to uh, assimilate into the local population and not raise any red flags. They have to dress like Palestinians, talk like Palestinians, smoke like Palestinians, and it's really an outstanding show. They, they, um, and I'm really kind of surprised because they reveal some Israeli tradecraft that I never thought uh, any Israeli series would ever show. For instance, when they want to grab somebody out of the West Bank for questioning, uh, at the very beginning of the show, they show these Israeli undercover guys um, grabbing a guy directly out of a mosque by using a ruse to enter the mosque, and then they pull the guy out. Um, later on, uh, in episode number two, um, there there is an amazing sequence about how this these Israeli units, and this is by, by the way, this is absolutely based uh, completely on real life. There are Israeli uh, national police Shin Bet, as well as Mossad, and then army units that specialize in in this kind of uh, complete immersion penetration into the West Bank or Gaza. Um, and knowing full well what the Palestinians are going to do if they find out who's that these guys are actually Israelis or not Palestinians, when you know that, it makes it all the more tense. And there is, of course, um, you know, drama between the operatives, um, you know, drama in the bedroom, drama at home and all that. Uh, I used to like the show The Unit, if you remember The Unit, but The Unit started great and it fell off really fast. It became silly. Uh, like 24 became silly uh, after the first hour. Uh, but Fauda, F-A-U-D-A on Netflix is absolutely excellent. Uh, the first season is 12 parts, 12 40-minute parts. I really can't recommend it highly enough. It's in, watch it in subtitles. It's in Hebrew and Arabic. Um, but you have to know kind of the subtlety of when these guys are speaking Arabic uh, and then when they're speaking Hebrew, because there's a lot of drama there about how they're able to switch back and forth. But um, I, I recommend watching it in subtitles. Arabic and Hebrew comes at you 100 miles an hour. So so have a have a good big screen TV. Feel free to rewind it. But again, occupied Norwegian. Um, they speak slowly. It's awesome. You can read the subtitles. Fauda, F-A-U-D-A on Netflix. Cannot recommend it highly enough. All right. That's the uh, Dark Secret Place. Hour number one. Back, uh, when we come back here in a second, I'll explain how the governor uh, either does or does not send National Guard troops to the border right after this. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Hour number two, Brian suits in here until midnight. And uh, China responding to uh, the the trade war, uh, tariffs on, on uh, Chinese goods with military exercises. Uh, it would appear, we'll get to that here 
in a little bit. And uh, the U.S. Army swinging for the fences when it comes to ballistic missile and uh, anti-aircraft defense. But uh, let's uh, start with this. I told you last hour I'd talk about this. So the Trump administration, uh, President Trump sort of surprising the Pentagon uh, last weekend, saying that he would put troops on the border. He didn't specifically say National Guard, but that was his understanding. I'm not sure if he quite understands the subtleties between a governor's National Guard and the federal army, the U.S. Army. But um, the Pentagon scrambled to come up with a plan, and they basically have it now that somewhere between two and 4,000 National Guard troops, from primarily from the actual border states, California, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas, will be placed on what's called state active duty for the purpose of supporting the Border Patrol. Now, I, I don't know if the president intended for people in military uniform with military gear to physically be on the border with weapons, but uh, he he probably it was probably explained to him that that you know quite literally that uh, if you did that with active duty troops they would be absolutely worthless without a declaration of war or declaration of emergency. But I'll get to that here in uh, just a second. What's California going to do? Well, Governor Brown has hedged a little bit on this. The, uh, the, the B, the Sacramento, Fresno, and Modesto B editorial boards are against sending the National Guard to the border. It's a little ridiculous because the Obama administration did it. The Bush administration did it. Um, what, what this entails, basically, is the Pentagon directs the adjutant general of each state um, who informs his governor that, um, hey, we've been given a mission by Big Army, by the uh, the federal regular army, by the Pentagon, to uh, support the federal law enforcement agency called Customs and Border Patrol. Um, and this can be done legally on in, in a state mission without being called up to act federal active duty by the Pentagon. So so I've, I've said a mouthful there. So w- what does that mean? Well, the regular army, the Air Force, the Marine Corps, the Navy, they are active duty military and they are empowered uh, and um, mandated through U.S. Code Title 10, uh, active duty military. The uh, various governors of the various states and territories, uh, American Samoa, Saipan, uh, Puerto Rico, they all have National Guards, Air Force and Air National Guards. The governors have, uh, the governors of every state and territory have uh, at hand a militia force for the purpose of civil disturbance or natural disaster. And that's generally what the Guard is used for. Uh, you see the Guard, you know, coming out during floods, during fires, and then, of course, during, during various civil disturbances here in California when uh, the Lakers win a championship or um, four cops are found not guilty in Simi Valley, whatever, right? Uh, so the governor gets to do that on his own authority. Now, does that mean that he can authorize, like, uh, you know, the tanks and everything? Well, yeah. Uh, in the case of California, what used to be just called the 40th Infantry Division, it was literally the largest division on paper in the U.S. Army. It had the most tanks, most artillery, most infantry, because we're the biggest state. So we, we have a huge Army National Guard. The, the governor 
if uh, a if martial law is declared by a governor um, and local authorities, especially the sheriff of a particular county, requests that the governor declare martial law, the um, the national guard can, in that case, uh, in in for, they can act in a law enforcement uh, manner. But without a declaration of martial law, the National Guard have limited to no law enforcement ability. Um, If you were here during the LA riots, you'll recall that that, uh, we went out. uh, I was in Echo Company, 4th Battalion, 160th Infantry here in Burbank, the uh, the Valhalla Armory. And we effectively hit the streets with our M16s and our uh, live rounds. And we really didn't have a heck of a lot of authority that we knew about. No, no, there was a lot of confusion. Could we detain looters if we saw them? Uh, no one really understood uh, because the various declarations had not been uh, finalized yet. By the time we did hit the riot scene uh, towards the end of day two, we did have the authority, if we saw lawlessness, if we saw uh, looting, to detain the looters. If the curfew was not honored, we had the uh, the authority to detain you. But we had to immediately inform LAPD or LA County Sheriff's Department. We, um, but in the case of martial law, this is kind of the interesting thing. We did it. We hastened people into the backseat of police cars or into buses. Um, though, in fact, in martial law, you don't have a, a phone call to a lawyer. You don't have the right to remain silent. You don't even have to be charged. Martial law is a really, really, really harsh toke. And it's it's what happens in the aftermath of of a, a natural disaster or in the case of civil disturbance, right? So what about just going down to the U.S. border? Well, this is where a lot of reporters, including a White House reporter yesterday, asking really, really ignorant questions um, about uh, what about when this caravan from Honduras sees troops with guns on the border? Well, here, here's the thing. In this mission, even on state active duty, called Title 32 State Active Duty, the National Guard members don't have the right to enforce civilian law. They, they're not commissioned peace officers in the state of California or Arizona or New Mexico or Texas. If they see 20 people crossing the border, um, there's really nothing they can do. But also, they're not going to be in that role. This is the other misunderstanding, which is a mystery to me because it was clarified during the Bush administration and the Obama administration that what the National Guard does, the relief that they give the Border Patrol, is in the form of sort of rear area support. Like, for instance, manning detention centers, which is a fairly thankless task. Uh, And those Border Patrol agents that are doing that would be better utilized, actually, on the border or at checkpoints, you know, on highways leading away from the border. So National Guard members will do things like transport detainees, uh, maintain vehicles, uh, man detention centers, thing, things like that that don't actually uh, require any sort of legal authority on the part of the person in uniform. So basically, it really is a cosmetic deployment and nothing more. Maybe Trump thought he would see uh, army troops behind machine guns on tripods. That's not how that works because, and I've talked about this a million times on this show, uh, there is no Mexico-California border. There's no Mexico-Texas border. There is only the Mexico-United States border. And when an individual crosses that border without authorization, it's civil. They've, they've, uh, they've committed a misdemeanor. And they can only be arrested by civilian law enforcement. The 
the United States military is constitutionally barred from enforcement of civilian law, uh, short of a declaration of national emergency or martial law. If you don't know that, that's the way it is. Um, and when an individual crosses the U.S. border as an individual or a group of individuals, they're committing that civil infraction. Now, if an army crosses the U.S. border, that's an invasion. That's an act of war. And there's people who say, well, this is an army. Well, it's not. It's an army of individuals, maybe. But those individuals are individually committing American misdemeanors. And then when we run their IDs and do the biometrics, we find out they've done it before. Well, coming back into the country illegally the second time, that's a felony every time after that. But National Guard on the borders um, is probably not what Trump intended, and it certainly is not what the media has chosen to, to interpret. Uh, they'll most likely be on state time. I'll tell you what, uh, take a break, come back, and uh, finish up on this here in just a second. It's the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until midnight live on KFI AM640. More stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until midnight. Talking about the National Guard on the U.S.-Mexico border. And so um, to get people down there as fast as possible, which is what Trump wanted, the Pentagon might actually call up entire units, cohesive units of uh, transportation or infantry or whatever. And this would entail possibly you know, two or three companies of infantry, uh, you know, about 130 um, soldiers per company to fulfill the state's tally. And they're talking about like Arizona kicks out 400, New Mexico kicks out four or 500 or whatever. And to get people physically down there as soon as possible, that's what you would do. But within 30 days, those soldiers would probably wherever they came from, and this is where it sucks to have this happen, whether it's a forest fire or whatever. Uh, maybe you're in the middle of a semester of college. Uh, maybe you just started a new job. Uh, and no matter what an employer says about how much they support you, when they see that you, without warning, are coming to work saying, eh, I got to go, maybe for 30 days, maybe for 300 days, I don't know. They don't like it. And and subconsciously, they file that away. I, I know that from personal experience, re regardless of what the law says. But very quickly, what the states will do, because there's a lot of experience with this, is they will backfill those units and replace them with volunteers. Because just like in the civilian sector, out, out just like because National Guard members are, are civilians, they have the same unemployment rate as the regular population, in fact, a little bit higher. And so there are enough unemployed guard members that they're getting the word this weekend that they can volunteer for this and they can go on state active duty for up to like 90 days. And when they go on state active duty, they're literally California employees, Arizona employees. Uh, they get full life insurance. Their families get life insurance. It's actually for a lot of guard members. It's, it's a godsend. I, I know as, as a NCO and an officer, when we got the word that there was a special mission uh, a, a forest fire support mission or whatever. We we got the word out to guys who needed that word as soon as possible. Usually on drills, uh, I, I'd get an idea about, you know, who needed work, uh, who wasn't doing so good, and we would give them the first shot at that because uh, maybe they're between jobs, they were fired from a job or were, you know, laid off or whatever. And, and a 60-day 
or 90-day paycheck is just a godsend in a lot of cases, and, and, and especially uh, with the free, with the health care. The health care bennies are actually better than active duty in a lot of ways in, in the California Guard. So that it was usually no problem finding people for that mission. For instance, after 9-11, uh, you saw in, initially National Guard members were in the airports, and they were usually from infantry units, so they looked pretty squared away. But within about a month or so, they were taken off active duty, and they were replaced by people who did not have the uh, physical bearance, the physical bearing that maybe you saw when the infantry guys were in there. But they were people who needed the work and volunteered and trained up and then went on active duty for – I know one guy who did it for two years. Who, who stayed in Seattle-Tacoma International Airport for two years with a unloaded weapon, with an unloaded weapon and no ammunition anywhere to be seen. But he looked good. Um, and so, uh, so that's how this will be manned out. But it's not going to be soldiers on the border. It's not going to be tanks on the border, nothing like that. Because, like I say, uh, the, the U.S. military is constitutionally forbidden uh, f- from uh, enforcing civilian law. And... Immigration law is civilian law. Um, And it was interesting to me because when this reporter asked Sarah Huckabee Sanders in the White House uh, yesterday, um, from the perspective of the caravan coming up from Mexico, what what will these immigrants think when they see American troops on the border? And she talked as if they were going to come to an actual border control point or something. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders flubbed the answer or whatever, but... This woman, this D.C.-based reporter, has clearly never seen the presence of the Border Patrol on the American southern border. The Border Patrol have some, uh, some units that look like Marine recon. The way they're outfitted and equipped with M4 carbines, air support, uh, the, the, the latest generation of what's called the ACH or Mitch helmet. If, if you didn't know different, if you didn't see the patches on them, you would think in many cases that you're looking at, at some special operations unit or police SWAT team. Um, so I, I, no one has ever had that consideration for what happens when the illegal aliens see guys kitted out like Marine Recon, but regardless. So it is, by the way, it's a, it's a non-troversy. It's a non-issue. It's not militarizing our border, which, by the way, there's nothing wrong with militarizing your border. It just so happens that the United States and Canada have the world's longest undefended border. That, that's how it's always described. Well, the United States and Mexico have the second largest undefended border. So all in all, the United States has the world's longest undefended borders between any two countries. Um, and, and in other words, we don't have our regular army guarding our borders. The, the French do. Uh, and, you know, oddly enough, you know who's on the other side of the border in Mexico, who's enforcing civilian law, the uh, Mexican Marines and the Mexican Army. And, you know, who's at their southern border trying to keep people from illegally crossing into Mexico? The Mexican Army. So there's that. Uh, all right. We'll be back in just a second. The Chinese responding to a trade war by practicing for a sea war. That and more coming up. Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until midnight on KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. Brian suits in here live until midnight. And the uh, trade war between the U.S. and China is flaring up. Uh, the uh, In the United States, 
most of the blows are being struck in the newspapers and media. Uh, President Trump, of course, tweeting out that uh, about a month ago, the trade wars are easy to win and the whole thing. We're um, keep in mind that very little of the announced tariffs and uh, uh, and other steps uh, against China have actually come into effect, nor have the Chinese countermeasures come into effect either. We just keep stepping up the rhetoric and they, they match us and step up the rhetoric. But the Chinese have done something far different from what we've done. Um, and, and this is if you understand the Chinese worldview and the intersection of foreign policy, commerce, and military power, then this was entirely predictable because this is how they operate. Um, Chinese state media says that they have launched a massive Navy drill in the South China Sea with 40 warships in an overt display of military muscle as three U.S. carrier battle groups pass by. The uh, the Chinese have been doing a very high-profile sort of uh, 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 freedom of navigation, what, what we would call freedom of navigation maneuvers in the South China Sea by taking massive flotillas of their latest naval ships, surface combatants, you know, et cetera, and sailing around the South China Sea, describing the outline of what they claim to be uh, to be theirs. And this was supposed to be sort of a splash, and they were going to go back to, to port. But now this trade war is heated up, so they've been told to turn around, go back out to sea in some of the largest naval maneuvers that anyone has seen the Chinese do, certainly the largest naval maneuvers that they've done since their refurbished aircraft carrier has been operational and get out there and do some live fire. So the Chinese are going to do a whole bunch of uh, uh, air-to-air live fire stuff, surface-to-air live fire stuff, um, anti-ship air-to-surface stuff. They're going to probably bring a lot of their submarines, and the Chinese have a lot of submarines, and they're building a lot of submarines. Uh, And so they want to not only match the American show of force, which is sort of a residual force from the North Korea strike buildup in December, January. We do have three carrier battle groups in the area. Two of them are in port right now, but they can they can leave very quickly. It's not like they're sailing around in a you know big three carrier parade. So what the Chinese have, but the Chinese assume that uh, because of their worldview that we don't have three carrier groups in the Pacific just because that's a coincidence or because we were posturing to make the North Koreans believe that we are about to strike them or whatever. The Chinese assume that the reason the carriers are still, uh, there's still that many carriers in the Western Pacific is to back up a trade conflict. This is the first time China's refurbished Soviet-era aircraft carrier, the Liaonong, has engaged in large-scale live-fire drills. It comes as the U.S. has three aircraft carrier battle groups converging on the contested waterways, the South China Sea, for its own exercises. Both sets of military maneuvers are being held as an Asian economic forum uh, gets underway on the Chinese island of Henan, which borders the disputed South China Sea. Uh, a Beijing-based military analyst, Zhao Shanming, told the South China Morning Post, China wants to show the outside world its determination to defend the fruits of its economic reforms over the past 40 years. Uh, he goes on, like the U.S., China's military might is one of the government's political tools to protect the country's national interests, close quote. So uh, you'll, you'll understand that the United States Navy doesn't ever go out uh, 
uh, and, and make the statement, we're out here supporting our nation's political and economic gains over the past 40 years. Though it's an understanding, obviously, that all strong nations must have a strong navy because a nation like the United States uh, relies on trade, on export and import, and that only works if you have freedom of navigation and somebody is policing the high seas. If we had confidence that the Chinese would be in that role, from the Indian Ocean to the Atlantic to the Mediterranean, this wouldn't be a problem. The problem is the Chinese have displayed this propensity uh, to flaunt international law, the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, the UNCLOS, uh, whenever they, they pick and choose. For instance, just building islands uh, by dredging up sand, building uh, you know islands into de facto aircraft carriers, which has been found by the international body, the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, to be illegal. The, the, the Philippines brought that case to The Hague, and they won. The, uh, the Chinese were found to be illegally building these islands, and once they were built, they had no legal right to demand people stay 12 nautical miles away from something that shouldn't be there. Um, and what happened after that? That was, that was a year ago. Well, nothing. Because the U.N. has no enforcement mechanism. The U.N. couldn't enforce anything if they wanted because China has veto power on the Security Council. And what the hell is the Philippines going to do? The Philippines have absolutely allowed their military to degrade since the U.S. Uh, left in the 90s. And they, they're discovering the hard way that it's kind of nice to be friends with the U.S. So um, this is a, a showdown on the high seas between a emerging and growing and very aggressive power that's trying right now to test the U.S. response. And, uh, and the United States w w unsuccessfully trying to separate the different conflicts. Because in the U.S., we see the trade war to be something absolutely completely separate from actual conflict, from actual war. The Chinese have never separated commerce from conflict, commerce from strength. Uh, and you're seeing that philosophy right now, that the, the Chinese, in their own words, saying, hey, this is what we're out here for. We're out here uh, uh, supporting our economic growth. And uh, what was the quote again? Um, showing, quote, showing the outside world its determination to defend the fruits of its economic reforms over the past 40 years. Close quote. Well, that's, that's nonsensical because the fruits of your economic reforms are at the port of Long Beach and the Panama Canal and the port of LA and port of San Francisco. If, if you want to see what happens when a large authoritarian communist centrally planned economy takes the handcuffs off of its own people, you just have to look at uh, large urban areas of the United States. Look at Irvine. Look at, look at who moved to Irvine over the past 20 years. Uh, the Chinese don't need to send their Navy out to defend the fruits of their economic reforms. Uh, that's what the stock market is for. But to them, this is the same thing, that showing the world that China is ready to punch you in the nose and that uh, the growth of the Chinese military is, is unabated and, uh, and, and without precedent, it's happening so quickly, that um, the Chinese are basically saying, now that we're getting up to speed here in the Pacific, we just feel like we might use it for any old conflict. Um, we, we might use it as a blow against a trade war uh, because 
we don't separate these things like you Americans do. So that's that's just sort of a, a little bit of perspective from the Chinese perspective. But they're out doing these basically huge snap naval maneuvers. Um, and the U.S. Navy is going to be doing a lot of freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. The uh, Chinese can't let that go unanswered, and this in the middle of a trade war. So if uh, if, if you are a, a fan of, of history, th- there the parallels between Rome and Carthage are inescapable uh, on this. But uh, anyway, hopefully, hopefully it'll be a different outcome, uh, certainly uh, of uh, the first of the Third Punic Wars. So uh, back in a minute, uh, the U.S. Army is looking for the Grand Slam of ballistic missile defense. That and more coming up. Brian Suits in here, the Dark Secret Place, live until midnight, KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is a Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here one last time. And, uh, yeah, the U.S. Army now, uh, in, instead of separating the Patriot anti-aircraft and anti-missile system from the larger ballistic missile system, the THAAD, the Theater High Altitude Air Defense uh, system, which has been tried out uh, in South Korea um, and uh, Alaska. Well, the U.S. Army now is trying to integrate these systems rather than having them stand alone, which is, uh, should be a bit surprising to most people that they're not integrated to begin with. Uh, because, for instance, with the U.S. Navy, with the Aegis-class frigate or cruiser, with the, the Aegis um, missile system on board, those craft, those ships can all data link either directly uh, or via satellite. And there's, there is a coordinated air defense uh, between them. The big problem, and, and this is not understood by a lot of people, uh, is that the U.S. Army on the ground with Patriot missiles uh, in South Korea or Israel, for that matter, or the theater high-altitude air defense in Japan and South Korea they don't talk to the U.S. Navy. They don't coordinate with Aegis cruisers who are in the ocean right off Japan. Uh, they have to manually liaise by phone calls to each other. Um, there, there's not a big overarching data system that, uh, that can take care of, of things in, in the blink of an eye. And it's certainly not integrated with the, uh, the uh, uh, GMD, the ground-based mid-course defense system in Alaska and Vandenberg Air Force Base. Um, You would think that there would be sort of an Amazon-like way to coordinate from the customer service to the warehouse to fulfillment to the FedEx driver um, within 48 hours, that that you can track a package like that, right? And I understand it's a bad analogy because missiles move at Mach 7 speed, uh, in, in the outer atmosphere, and these decisions have to be made, uh, you know, in the blink of an eye, which is, by the way, all the more reason why you would want these things coordinated. But anyway, the Army is going to begin the process of digitally coordinating uh, these things. And at exercises in White Sands, New Mexico, they're declaring that uh, it was there was a success there uh, or something. But our our ability to shoot down ballistic missiles has been a pretty depressing failure over the past 20 years that after 40 or $50 billion, we're effectively only at a 50% uh, ability to shoot one, one incoming missile. Um, never mind against the realistic scenario where someone is shooting 20 or 200 or 2000 at a time. Um, interesting chapter. I'd never heard of this. 
in um, the war of spies between Taiwan and China has been going on since 1947, since the Chinese nationalists uh, retreated to the island of Taiwan and uh, began spying on, on China and China began spying on them. Well, in 1996, and I barely remember this, in 1996, there was a missile crisis as the Chinese, uh, the communist Chinese, were doing large-scale missile tests in the Taiwan Strait. They were launching missiles from shore defense batteries, ballistic missiles, and sea-based missiles. And these were large shows of, of strength, very, very close to Taiwan, uh, Taiwanese territorial waters, which, of course, the Chinese don't recognize. They consider Taiwan to be a rogue breakaway uh, province, which will be brought back into the fold, uh, either nonviolently or violently, but someday will be unified. Well, uh, evidently, there were very high-level spies in the Chinese, in the Red Chinese People's Liberation Army uh, general staff who were feeding information to Taiwan. Um, and we know this because they were executed. And one of the reasons we know this is because in the Taiwanese Military Intelligence uh, uh, Museum, which is dedicated to the founder of Taiwanese, uh, the, the founder of Taiwanese intelligence and military intelligence, a guy by the name of Dai Li, who is a, a legend in Taiwan, uh, in, uh, in the museum named after him, there are memorial tablets to two communist Chinese generals. And uh, we know this because last week, the president of Taiwan, President uh, Tsai Ing-wen, and a media contingent were able were allowed to visit the hall. This hall is normally absolutely private. Civilians can't go in. If, if um, elected officials go in, they don't bring cameras. But cameras were brought in, and there was a reason for that. It's so that the Chinese could see that, uh, that, that uh, uh, Taiwan has pretty much had their way with, uh, with spies of the PLA for years. Because back in 1996... Um, the Red Chinese People's Liberation Army Major General uh, Liu Lankun told his Taiwanese handlers not to worry about the missile exercises because even though they looked like practice for an invasion, practice for the prelude to an invasion, don't worry because the missiles don't have warheads. And then, oh, by the way, uh, Beijing currently has no plans to attack Taiwan. He was executed in 1999. Why was Major General uh, Liu Lankun uh, executed? Well, because the president of Taiwan at the time, in 1999, uh, accidentally leaked the information and where it came from. So he basically did the Chinese job uh, for them. What the Taiwanese military did not know up to that point was that another Chinese general on the same day was executed for uh, gathering intelligence uh, on Taiwan. There's a, there's a weird uh, tit-for-tat between China and Taiwan that Whenever one side catches a spy, the other side will catch a spy and then brag about how they broke up this, uh, this ring of Chinese spies. And then the Chinese will brag about how they broke up a Taiwanese ring of spies uh, and, and et cetera. But, but uh, it's except for, you know, uh, East and West Germany, it's, it's hard to imagine two countries more easily able to spy on each other because they each speak the same language, look alike. Um, have absolute, you know, uh, uh, close, uh, uh, you know, cultural information and how to how to uh, assimilate, just like the East Germans were able to do into West Germany. But uh, so it's interesting. Um, all right, thanks for listening. Uh, back tomorrow night.
For Super Hyper Local Sunday, we will talk about the old man whose balls were stuck in the park bench uh, in Hollywood. Hopefully, we'll have a lot more uh, information. There's many, many questions that are just hanging out there, hanging very low. Uh, and we uh, hopefully, we can we can pick the low-hanging fruit tomorrow and get you some answers like you deserve. Brian Suits out. Uh, thanks to uh, Hector and Michael Chappé. We'll be back tomorrow at 8 p.m. on KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk.